You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Good morning. My name is Brian McIver. I'm not a pastor here. I'm not an elder here. I'm part of the lay preaching cohort that's preaching to Ecclesiastes this summer. Um, and I'm excited to be here, and thank you for being here too. Um, I'm not sure if you've had a chance to take in the recent Top Gun Maverick film. And to be clear, I'm hoping you don't come to church on Sunday morning for Hollywood movie reviews, because you shouldn't. Referencing Hollywood movies is not my go-to sermon opener, not even close. But what I find most interesting about this film is that it anchors itself on a relatively wholesome good versus evil, courage versus consensus, right versus wrong dichotomy wrapped around the military might of the United States. That and a number of highly implausible yet entertaining plot lines. And my sense is that it is somewhat refreshing and therapeutic in an age when the practical importance of military strength is reinforced with each passing day, with the images and visuals of modern warfare being played out in real time in our news feeds and our headlines. We live in a world plagued by what seems like unprecedented economic uncertainty, with a looming recession and the potential for economic collapse. Geopolitical instability, which is really just a fancy buzzword for civilians in other countries getting mowed down by thermobaric weapons on a daily basis. And political divisions in our most cherished democracies, where citizens seem to be on the brink of civil war over divisive issues like abortion, law and order, foreign policy, even to the point of politically motivated assassinations. It's no wonder that we're drawn to the strength and power of mankind's greatest achievements in military prowess on land, in the air, and on the seas. As I consider this current climate in the context of God's truth, I'm reminded of a story of a United States naval battle group at sea. This story is very likely just that, and nothing more than a story. It's also one that you might have heard before. It plays out a short transcript of a radio exchange between the American and the Canadian naval services somewhere off the coast of Newfoundland circa 1990s. An American aircraft carrier identifies the lights from a ship that is in the waters ahead directly in their path and radios the ship to request that it divert its course. The Americans radio, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. The Canadians respond, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The Americans reply, this is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, divert your course 15 degrees to the north. The Canadians respond, No, I say again, you divert your course. Back comes the reply. This is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I am ordering you to change your course 15 degrees north, that's one five degrees north, where countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of this ship and this fleet. The response comes. This is the Gull Island Lighthouse. Your call. You see, when we lose context in life, particularly when we lose context of those things that are bigger than us, more immovable than us, and more sovereign than us, we tend to head straight for destruction. We lose our way and create the potential to make the wrong decisions and end up shipwrecked in our faith. 
We live in a world that seeks not just to chip away at the foundations of God's truth through its politics, its laws, its preferences, and even its popular vote. It's executing an all-out assault on the foundations of God's truth. And even as this world succumbs to the logical consequences of its own evil actions and decisions, as it washes up on the rocky shores of life, smashed, bruised, and battered, it continues to lash out at God, its heart hardened and blackened by its own wickedness. This shipwrecked illustration is used more than once in the Bible to describe this danger facing us all. If you have your Bibles in front of you, turn with me to Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 1, 18 to 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And again in Jude, verses 10 to 13. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they like, unreasoning animals understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's heir and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in the late autumn twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. The NLT translates verse 12 as they are like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. And so our focus for our text today in Ecclesiastes 7 is that we need to be thoroughly aware of God's broader truth in order to withstand the storms of life. My goal today is to, number one, remind us that today's message in Ecclesiastes 7 fits perfectly and thoughtfully within the broader context of Scripture. Number two, highlight the divine wisdom for life that is found in these verses. And number three, help us to see the powerful and unchanging gospel message that is delivered here almost 1,000 years before Christ's death on the cross. As we work through this book of Ecclesiastes, we've completed 10 of 16 sermons in the series. We're into the last half, and in contrast with the first three chapters of this book, which present a clear and concise argument, the middle chapters of the book move into a poetry style with Tob sayings or better than sayings, very similar to a Proverbs format. And at this point, it's not an uncommon experience, I think, for the reader to lose the context of the broader scriptures and how these verses fit within that. It's incredibly important to understand that indeed Ecclesiastes is indelibly linked to the rest of the entire scriptures as it unpacks God's truth and the gospel message. If you have a study Bible, or you've been exposed to study Bible materials, you may have come across biblical cross-references. These are the links from one Bible verse to another Bible verse, where either the authors themselves or scholars have cited and identified other portions of the scriptures that are directly and undeniably related. These references cross the boundaries of chapters, books, and even the Old and New Testament. As often as not, these are the verses in the Old Testament that are 100% in alignment with verses written thousands of years later in the New Testament Gospels and Epistles and vice versa. An individual by the name of Chris Harrison has taken the time to visualize these cross-references across every chapter of every book in the entire canon of Scripture, and this is what it looks like. Ecclesiastes is highlighted here, and I trust this is a helpful reminder that the book of Ecclesiastes is connected forwards and backwards with the rest of the ark of the Scriptures. Speaking of which, 
Please have your Bibles open in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, please take that Bible home as your own. What you need to hear from today will not be from me, but from God's word through the power of his Holy Spirit. Let's open in prayer. Holy Spirit, speak through, and in spite of my words, reveal your truth that is found in this book and that is found in your entire scriptures. And God, prepare our hearts to receive communion as we celebrate your death and resurrection. Pray this in your name, amen. Turn with me to Ecclesiastes 7. We're gonna start in verses one to the first half of verse eight. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. Point number one is the benefits of detours. There is a rhythm here giving priority to the negative, to hardship, and to death. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Sorrow is better than laughter. Better to hear rebuke than the song of fools. Verse eight is the climax of this counter-cultural perspective. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. What is the end of a thing? It's our death. It's death itself. And how is death better than birth? This is so contrary to a human-centric view of the world which says this life is all there is. Soak every second up because that's all you get. In that case, then our birth is far greater than our death. Our birth represents the maximum potential for all that life has in store for us. And our death is our final expiry. It's over. Death is the worst. But a closer examination of reality and the facts pushes back on the notion that this life is all there is. The evidence tells us that our death isn't the end. Death doesn't have the final say. The truth of God's word and the fact that everything around us tells us that this life isn't all there is and that there is a life beyond our life on earth. And in that context, our human death is our launching pad into eternity. The state of our heart and our relationship with God upon our death is the most important and defining moment in our life, determining how we will relate to God for the rest of eternity, either in an intimate relationship or total separation. Clearly the day of death is better than the day of birth. The day of our death is the defining moment, the pinnacle of our life, which carries on into eternity. And further to that, thinking of the other parts of that first passage, it's the hardships in life that build our character and our person, not the interludes of rest or indulgence. It doesn't even take a Christ-centered worldview to understand this concept. We only build muscles when we stretch them, strain them, tear them. We only build the capacity of our hearts and our lungs by pushing their limits in physical exercise. We only expand our knowledge and the capacity of our brains by training and straining our mental abilities. Study and memorization make us smarter, not watching TV and napping on the couch. It's only discipline that makes us stronger. 
And it's no different with our spiritual lives and our spiritual walks. Abraham preparing to sacrifice his only son. Joseph enduring the years of wrongful imprisonment. David being persecuted by Saul. The Apostle Paul being imprisoned for his faith. Jesus Christ being nailed to a cross. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. How we end up is far more important than how we start. The application here is that we can learn to embrace our hardships and live life with the end top of mind. The next point for navigating life by the sun is to beware of danger. The next two and a half verses warn us of dangers that lay before us in our journey of life. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. We've just looked at the benefits of hardship and trials, and now the end of verse 8 implores us and warns us not to become impatient with trials or delayed gratification. The first danger here is don't be proud, be patient. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished, Proverbs 16, 5. Verse 8b equates impatience with pride and implores us to be patient. I'm sure that each one of us can draw a straight line between impatience and anger, and next on the list is just that. Verse 9 implores us not to become angry. Don't be angry. Anger implies a sense of self-righteousness, that we have a right to be angry because we are above the sin around us that arouses our anger. And finally, the last danger highlighted here is not to be consumed with nostalgia. Verse 10 calls us not to get wrapped up in the nostalgia of the past. This is especially difficult for a Christian conservative who often describes benefit to things simply because they existed in the past. Listen to the children of Israel longing for the past. In Numbers 14, verse 1 to 4. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Don't dismiss the warnings for the unsaved. Don't dismiss these as warnings for the unsaved or the casual believer. These are warnings for those of us that are saved. We become proud. We become angry. And we think we know best because of our vast experience and our infatuation with the past. And our infatuation with the things of yesterday can prevent us from seeing the blessings God has in store for us in the future. Not only do we need to watch out for danger, but we need to be reminded of our need to seek out God's wisdom for direction. Point number three is in verses 11 to 12, and it's asking for directions. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. The author very clearly extols wisdom and our need for it. 
The ESV translates this as wisdom is good with an inheritance. However, it could also be translated wisdom is as good as an inheritance. Regardless, the author is promoting the value of wisdom by equating it with wealth and an inheritance. We don't have the answers, and the answers do not come from within us. They come from a source outside of us, and that source is God. And not only is wisdom to be esteemed alongside great wealth, wisdom is better than wealth because God's wisdom can save you. This is a clear pointing to something beyond life under the sun, beyond what money can buy, beyond the material world and what it has to offer. There is the recognition that truth and wisdom reach above the sun and have implications beyond the material and physical world. And we need to ask God for directions because God is sovereign and he rules the seas. Point number four, verses 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. It's a simple point, and we don't need to overcomplicate it. God is sovereign. Indeed, the crookedness of the world is not merely a fate or even the product of unguided interactions of chemical and biological organisms. No, this broken, fallen world lives under God's sovereign hand, which prompts the question, if God is sovereign, why does he allow the evil and brokenness that we see around us? And the author answers that very question perfectly in verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Michael Eaton writes, both prosperity and adversity have their uses. One leads to joy, the other draws attention to the realities of life and leads, if so allowed, to a life of faith in a sovereign God. Both are subject to God's will and part of his providence. The constant fluctuations between them keeps us dependent not on our own guesswork, but on God who holds the key to all unknown. Let me read that again. Both prosperity and adversity have their uses. One leads to joy, the other draws attention to the realities of life and leads, if so allowed, to a life of faith in a sovereign God. Both are subject to God's will and part of his providence. The constant fluctuation between them keeps us dependent not on our own guesswork, but on God who holds the key to all unknown. And in a world with both prosperity and adversity that we don't control, the writer provides us guidance on how to respond to this and to avoid two dangerous extremes. Point number five is to chart a middle course. Let's look again at verses 17, or verses 15 to 18. In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Lots of fun things in our chapter 7 today. The first one here is not giving you permission to be a little bit wicked. Let's be clear. In these verses, the author implores us to chart a middle course, but let's unpack more specifically what he means. Verse 15 simply states that life is unfair, and it's to be expected. 1 Peter 4.12 says, 
Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Next, the author warns us of two dangers to avoid. And the first danger is self-righteousness. In verse 16, there is a sense of irony here in the words, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Just ahead in verse 20 and elsewhere in the book and elsewhere in the Bible, the author is clear that there is no one that is completely righteous. And so the warning here is not that we can become too righteous. No, the warning here is that we shouldn't think that we can be righteous at all. The first danger is in self-righteousness. That's the first danger. The second danger is don't be wicked. It's our wickedness. In verse 17, the danger isn't swinging all the way to the polar opposite and succumbing to our evil nature. As I said before, to be clear, this is not permission to be a little wicked. And to be even more clear, there is not a spectrum between wickedness and self-righteousness that the author is talking about. A spectrum would apply that some combination of wickedness and self-righteousness is permissible and okay. No, these two dangers are hazards in the water to be completely avoided. These are icebergs right and left, and we want to steer clear of them both. I hope that's clear. And so, verse 18 sums it up nicely for us, concluding that it is only when we properly fear God that we can abandon our own self-righteousness and resist our temptation to sin. And it is only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can sail right through these hazards. Can you see the gospel message peeking through? God's sovereignty in spite of hardships and suffering. Man's wickedness and the temptations of a fallen world. Our need to ask for directions and our need for a rescuer to help us avoid the mortal dangers of self-righteousness and wickedness that lie just beneath the surface everywhere we go. And of course, the end of a thing is better than the beginning is a haunting but beautiful foreshadowing of God's plan to save us. But of course, what story, what experience, what narrative would be complete without a quest for an elusive goal? Verses 19 to 24 paint the picture of this need we have for wisdom, and yet even with wisdom, the ultimate answers remain elusive. A hidden, but not so hidden treasure on the sea of life. Carrying on in verse 19 through 24. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? The imagery in verse 19 is clear and straightforward, equating the value and strength of wisdom to the collective might and insight of a group of experienced civic leaders. Verse 20 concludes the argument from our last point and reaffirms that no one is righteous, no, not even one. We all want wisdom, but obtaining it is easier said than done. Verses 21 and 22 point out human sinfulness in speech, both for those around us as well as we ourselves. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows how many times you, yourself, have cursed others. 
And Kohelet, the author, concludes in verses 23 and 24, in spite of his wisdom, and I'm assuming this is Solomon, who God granted much wisdom, that even with the wisdom God granted him, the ultimate answers were still out of reach without God. Life under the sun, the S-U-N, is life apart from God. Without God, the answers are still out of reach. God's wisdom isn't something to be downloaded and saved or acquired. It won't come to us with it won't come to us without a close and intimate relationship with God himself, a relationship that is cultivated regularly and a relationship that is made a priority. At this point, we've covered God's sovereignty, man's wickedness, our need to be rescued, and our inability to gain true wisdom apart from God. But heading into the final six verses of our passage today, I would argue we're still looking for a life preserver. And as we head into verses 25 to 29, it appears that we are lost at sea. Turn with me to 7, verse 25. I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, a woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes." God's truth is the lighthouse. We may be a fishing boat, a kayak, a canoe, a U.S. Navy destroyer, or a Nimitz-class submarine. Doesn't matter. We need to yield to God's truth. And we don't fear God's truth. We take refuge in God's truth. God's truth shows us exactly where the dangerous shoreline is. And we absolutely take comfort in all of God's truth. No ship on the seas argues with a lighthouse. And while verse 28 appears to be troubling, it's not. And here's the punchline for verse 28 and for this section. This is a word picture, an idiom or expression, if you will, pointing to man's depravity. Let's back up. Verse 25 is the setup. The author is setting out to discover and ponder the character of mankind in its entirety. I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. That's the goal. There is nothing in this section that would lead any honest student of the text to understand that the author is attempting to draw distinguishing characteristics between the sexes. The word picture here draws in an exaggerated contrast between the sexes to make a point about all of human depravity. And there is no historical or contextual evidence to suggest this is directed towards women. Never mind the fact that a postmodern culture would be hard-pressed to bring such an argument against this text because they can no longer even define what a woman is, but that's a different issue. Let's pause for a moment. Consider the English idiom, I trust them as far as I can throw them. To be clear, in employing this phrase, no one is throwing anyone, and then measuring that distance, and then attempting to compare a physical distance they've measured out across the ground against an abstract scale of trust. Not only is it impractical to pick someone up and throw them, it's impossible to quantify trust. And that doesn't stop anyone from using the expression And that doesn't stop anyone from understanding the meaning of this word picture. And any scholar or student 3,000 years in our future 
who suggested this phrase implied that we were picking people up, throwing them, and had a way to quantify and measure the distance of our trust, would be completely out to lunch. And by out to lunch, I don't mean they're actually out somewhere eating an afternoon meal. You get the idea. This is a word picture that drives home the point that the sinfulness of man pervades all of mankind. Just look at the math. One in a thousand is one-tenth of one percent. It is completely incomprehensible to suggest that the author is making the point that men are one-tenth of one percent better than women. Colet is not making a quantitative comparison, so clearly the contrast between the sexes is not the point. There's a rhythm in the language. Righteousness is virtually non-existent to men, and I can't find it in women. The point is, sin is everywhere, and in everyone, and sinlessness is exceedingly rare. Verse 29 29 reaffirms this when it says, See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made man upright, but men and women, God made mankind upright, but men and women chose their own way and said, God, not your will be done, but our will be done. And when we look at the world around us, we can see just exactly what our world and our will looks like. And it's awful. But what about that small, tiny sliver? What about that one-tenth of one percent? Wouldn't there be someone, couldn't there be someone who is righteous? The complete thought here in chapter 7 is actually wrapped up in the first verse of chapter 8. It's important, or at least helpful, to understand that the Bible we hold in our hands is the product of 66 distinct books and letters authored between 1450 B.C. and 180. And there were no chapter and verse divisions in the original writings. The chapter and verse divisions are not divinely inspired, which is not to say they aren't helpful. They were developed between 900 and 1500 A.D., with the Geneva Bible of 1560 being the first English Bible published with the chapter and verse divisions we use today. These divisions almost always make sense, but there are instances where it's difficult to identify the correct break in the author's words, and this is one such point. And that's the reason to include the first verse of chapter 8 in our sermon text today. Chapter 8, verse 1, is our Savior. This is our life preserver. We know that entering into this broken world to rescue his fallen creation is Jesus. And the words in verse 1 of chapter 8 are a fitting conclusion to chapter 7. Let's read them. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardiness, the hardness of his face is changed. The word like here is not just referring to a casual similarity between objects as in this meat tastes like chicken. No, the word used here is often used to describe an exact likeness to an ideal, as in it is the ideal itself. And I submit that we can understand that the author is referring to someone who perfectly resembles the description. And the description is twofold. Firstly, one who can interpret and answer the mysteries of life presented in this book. The word for interpret means one who knows the solution or the cure. Secondly, the reference to a shining face is generally used to infer favor, and that favor is often associated with God. Number 625 says, The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. We can't say for certain that these words and these verses refer to Jesus Christ, but he certainly fits the description. He is the exact likeness of the one who understands and has the cure for our sinful world. 
More importantly, it's his face shining in the dark night that is the only beacon of truth and hope, that wisdom, hope and wisdom that can save us. So many passing in the night will reject the light of his truth in favor of their own. And the analogy works so well. Because we know that no matter the size, the scale, the capability, the intelligence, the wealth, or the might of a vessel, any vessel that ignores the beacon of the lighthouse will run aground and be shipwrecked. And so God calls to us. It's crucially important to understand how he chooses to call to us. We've unpacked the meaning between, behind the verses 26 through 28, in which the author chooses to use male and female characters in his word picture. I would say that's not an accident. And I would say to you, much more than just having a satisfying explanation for this picture that the Bible paints about mankind's fallenness, there is a far deeper meaning behind this picture that the rest of the scriptures paint. You see, God chooses very carefully and very specifically to characterize his relationship with us in the context of marriage. We don't have time to go through them all today, but undoubtedly you're familiar with the way that Christ refers to himself as the the groom and we the bride. It wouldn't be entirely out of line to consider that we as mankind play the role of women in these verses. If we step back and look at the entirety of scripture, it's clear to see that God uses the marriage covenant as the model and illustration for his relationship with us. Understanding that the joining of a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage is the fundamental building block of our society and of all of humanity, second only to our relationship with the creator God, it should be no surprise that God uses marriage to describe and communicate his desire for his relationship with us. God carefully, perfectly, and beautifully paints this picture for us throughout all of history through his chosen people. In the Hebrew culture, when a young man was to be married, the groom and his father would meet with the bride-to-be and her father to negotiate a bride price. This bride price was substantial, similar in cost to buying a home. It was meant to replace the loss of a daughter, and, it was, and after it was agreed upon, it was for the groom to pay. The biblical evidence for this is clear. Genesis, 19, Genesis 29, 18 recounts how Jacob agreed to work for seven years to pay for Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Further in Genesis, Shechem pleads with Jacob for his daughter, Dinah's hand in marriage. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me, only give me the young woman to be my wife. And finally, 1 Samuel 18, 25. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price except the hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Once the bride price was agreed to, the father of the groom would pour a cup of wine for his son. And the son would present the cup to the younger daughter, his bride-to-be, saying, this cup represents a covenant between you and me in the bond of marriage. Do you accept? The bride was not being sold, and the bride was not being forced into a marriage. She had her choice. She could either decline or accept the offer and drink from the cup. 
After accepting the offer, the couple would be legally bound to be married. The son would return to his father's house to prepare a place, a room for his new bride. And sometime later, he would return to celebrate the wedding and to consummate the marriage. No doubt with the benefit of hindsight, the symbolic parallels here are so obvious that they can knock us over the first time we make the connection. And generation after generation, the people of the Jewish culture would carry out this tradition, this ritual in their patrols and weddings. And sometime around April, likely in the year 33 AD, a man who understood fully the mysteries of life, who possessed all the wisdom of God, and whose face shone because he was God himself, he prays, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Listen to Matthew 26, 39. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And just hours earlier, in a room with his disciples, Jesus offers the cup to them, and they understand instinctively that he wants an intimate covenant relationship with them. And a day later, he would pay our bride price as he hung on the cross. And just two days after that, piercing through the thickest, blackest, darkest night, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the light of God's victory over death, would illuminate the world, exposing our sin and providing the rescue that creation had been longing for. As Solomon writes the words of Ecclesiastes 7 some 3,000 years ago, it's clear to see God's hand superintending his words in alignment with the rest of the canon of Scripture. And an honest reader can see plainly the wisdom God has laid out here before men. And we cannot mistake the message, even here, of our need for a Savior and God's promise to send His Son as the perfect man to pay the penalty for our sin. And so as we too come to the table 2,000 years later, after Jesus first introduced it, to celebrate and commemorate the Lord's Supper, and as the worship team comes, I'd ask that we bow our heads as we prepare our hearts for communion. Let's thank God for his sovereignty. Let's ask him to help us embrace the detours in life. Let's ask him to make us aware of the dangers around us. Let's ask him to give us the humility to ask for directions as we chart a middle course, avoiding our own wickedness and our own self-righteousness. And if we haven't already done so, Let's ask him to help us welcome and accept his rescue plan of salvation. This table and these elements are not the table of redemption church olds. This is the Lord's table. We do this in obedience to him to commemorate Christ's death and resurrection. And if you're not a believer, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then please let the elements pass you by. This is not for you. Instead, use this time to search your heart and hear Jesus Christ's call on your life.